Well, Luke 18, verse 1, he spoke a parable to them to the end that people should always pray and not faint, not give up. Now, it seems to me that Paul is consciously and unconsciously alluding to the words of Jesus all the time. I worked out it's about once every three verses uh, on average, he's alluding back to the, to the words of Jesus. He was completely filled with, with the gospel records, as, as we should be. And the connection that, that he, he makes back here to keep on in prayer and don't faint, uh, I think is in 2 Thessalonians 3 verse 13, where he says, Brethren, don't be weary, don't faint, don't give up in well-doing. And what well-doing does he have in mind? Well, in 2 Thessalonians 3 verse 1, in that context, he says, Brethren, pray for us. Pray for us and don't give up. And again, in Ephesians, uh, in Ephesians 3.13, he says, In Christ we have boldness and access with confidence to God. And it's talking about prayer. Wherefore I desire that you don't faint. The same word here, Luke 18, verse 1, don't faint. So he's saying, please keep on praying. There is an element to prayer that requires us to keep on. In other words, not to just throw out a couple of uh, desperate pleas to God and think, yeah, well, I prayed, but to keep on. And so then this woman that is uh, chosen here as a representative of all of us, she keeps on begging the unjust judge and she pesters him to the point that eventually he gives her uh, justice. And so... God likewise is going to avenge or justify, verse 7, his own elect who cried day and night unto him. So she's asking for justice. She's asking for judgment. Now, she's longing for judgment to come. And this is very much what you see in the Psalms, Psalm 67, verse 4, 96, 12 and 13, uh, many other places in the Psalms where David asks God to judge him and to hurry on judgment day. So, if we are in Christ, and if we are secure in that relationship, the day of judgment is something we look forward to, rather than a big sort of enigma, a big question mark at the end of our destiny. And that's how it should be. We should look forward to it, because of course, finally, we, we know that that, that uh, justice, that judgment, is going to come at the Lord's return. And, of course, this theme is continued onwards in this parable, in this chapter, when the Lord Jesus gives the parable starting in um, verse 10 about the two men who go up to the temple to pray, the Pharisee and the publican. And the Pharisee is arrogant and the publican won't lift up so much as his eyes under heaven, but says, God be merciful to me, the sinner, in verse 13. And... Uh, Jesus sums this up by saying in verse 14 that this man went down to his house justified and uh, this is the, um, <coughs> the the same word that you've got there in verse 3 that the woman, the, the widow asks the judge for justification the King James says avenge me but the idea is of justice it's of give me justification and I think the Lord's point in, in both these little stories is that justification against those who perceive as our abusers will be by God's grace and it will be when Christ comes. Now, if we can get that underlined in our little heads that justice will be done when the Lord comes. So much of the pain that people experience in their lives is because they're worked up about issues of injustice. I was treated like this, but others were treated like that. 
you can't break bread in the church but he can even though they know that he's immoral or whatever she's not allowed to attend the gathering but he is and so forth it's not fair and these issues become very big in people's minds and yet if we understand and really believe that justice according to the Lord Jesus is to be done at his return at that day when the Lord Jesus returns and that the ultimate justification the ultimate justice that we receive in this life is the fact that we like the the publican who confess our sins we go down to our house justified we get the justice in the sense that we are counted righteous by God because we have repented and that should be enough for this life that should see us through that's all the justice that that we could want I mean it's actually injustice in, in a sense because we as sinners are counted as righteous we are justified uh, and so with all sort of moral legitimacy because we're in Christ God can count us as if we had been declared right and this is the whole theme of Romans 1-8 to and so all that the pain that there is and the upset and the, even the loss of faith there is about lack of justice should be resolved in those terms that we have been given justice and we shouldn't have been given it in the sense that we've been declared right because of our repentance and also the ultimate justice is when Jesus returns now if we just accept that then that's it we're not going to get justice in this world you can come to extreme cases where believers say I'm going to take you to court but you know what's the point you, you think you're going to get justice in this world the basic message of the Lord Jesus is that that justice comes when the Lord comes back now in all the parables of Jesus there is an element of unreality and in this story about the widow woman begging for justice I think the, the element of unreality is that she is a woman in a man's world without a man to represent her because she's a woman now, Palestinian peasant courts have been described in some detail by contemporary writers as apparently they were like a, a mass of men shouting at the judge and he just basically decided the cases according to who gave the largest bribe and women never went to court it was a man's world in those peasant courts she had no money to pay a bribe she had no male to represent her but she still went to the court and there everyone was shouting and yelling at the judge and this woman starts yelling as well and for some reason she just kept on so persistently that he responded to her people would have said wow that's really unusual and that is the point that we are to continue in prayer this is the lesson I guess of Gethsemane to continue in prayer and not, not fall asleep and so in verse 5 we're told that the judge says lest by her continual coming she weary me and this is a weird word that's used there because the, the Greek word really means to beat black and blue and the RV margin gives bruise for that I'm going to give her justice unless she bruises me by keeping on coming to me now this is what the unjust judge says but it's also true that prayer is represented or expressed in the Bible in terms of struggle maybe the classic example is when Jacob struggled with the angel and in Hosea 12, 4-6 
that is picked up and interpreted for us in terms of his prayerfulness. He was praying with the angel, he was wrestling with God, and he had power over the angel and prevailed. He was begging, I think, not to be killed that night by, uh, by Esau, um, not to be killed by Laban, and God had grace upon him, because he struggled. In Luke 21, verse 36, if you like to just uh, turn over, uh, Luke 21, uh, 36, you have the, uh, the same idea, talking about prayer, that we are to pray always, that we may be accounted worthy to escape all these things that shall come to pass. And the, the RV gives prevail there. The idea is that we are to watch and, and prevail in prayer. Isaiah 62 would be another example. Verse 7, we are to give the Father no rest until he makes Zion... Uh, the capital of, of his kingdom uh, and that again is the idea and the original of, of, of a cessation from warfare so then prayer is a struggle God is open to, to dialogue with us I've suggested elsewhere that there is what I call a gap theory that, that I, I put to you that God can state his intended purpose sometime before it's going to be carried out and in the gap between the statement of the purpose and the fulfilment of it he's opened a dialogue and prayer in that sense is not to be a, a rushing off of a few quick sort of requests it is to be a real engagement with God and dialogue now this widow woman praying to God is described as representative here, verse 7, of God's own elect who cried day and night to him and that they will be uh, recompensed in the, the coming of Christ. In verse 8 the, the reference to the Son of Man coming uh, I think is, is, is suggesting that. But this woman specifically represents us, the believers of the last days, because we are also called, in passages that talk about the last days, uh, the elect. Uh, just example, Mark 13 verse 20, uh, except the Lord would shorten the last days, no flesh would be saved, but for the elect's sake those days will be shortened. So again you see the elect, the chosen, being associated with intense prayer in the last days. And you have that here in Luke 18. And yet he says, will he find faith on the earth or possibly in the land when he returns? Whether the last generation of believers are really going to have the sort of faith that that woman had is open to question. It's not to say that there will be nobody uh, believing the truth or believing God or, or in fellowship with God because there's plenty of other verses that talk about, for example, those that are alive and remain being snatched away to, to meet the Lord. So I don't think it's saying that there will be no one in relationship with God when he comes. But I think it's saying that their faith may not be, our faith may not be, as it should be. It may not be as that woman's faith was, that, that insistent continuance in prayer. And so, as I said, he, he sort of leads on from this to talk about the, the two men who go up to the temple to pray. And the publican is to be our example. The one who uh, beats upon his, his, uh, his breast and says, God, 
have mercy upon me, the sinner, as uh, the Greek definitely says, verse, uh, verse 13. He wouldn't lift up his eyes so much as to heaven. <coughs> and he goes down justified, having got his vengeance, as it were, in the same way as the woman goes away from the judge, having got her justification, her, her, her vengeance. And he beats upon his um, his breast, whereas the other guy uh, prays. It says that the Pharisee prays with himself. Verse 11. And this, I think, is the Old Testament idea, to quote the King James, of prayer returning into one's bosom. I think the idea is that you can think you're praying, but it's actually one part of your brain talking to a black box and another part of your brain that you're calling God. It's all only internal. And we've got to, of course, be like this man who is the publican, who is very much aware that prayer is a direct dialogue between me here on this little earth and God in heaven. It's been remarked that usually men prayed with their hands crossed over their chest and that at funerals um, even then men did not beat upon their breast. It was women who did that and this man does that. And apparently beating upon the breast was, was a particular gesture that was understood as characteristic of women rather than men. And so again you have an element of unreality. This man is very, very uh, grief-stricken because of his sin. Now the times of prayer in the temple coincided with the offering of the daily sacrifices and this man says in verse 13 uh, in English have mercy on me but um, really the idea is uh, propitiation is actually the same word translated to make propitiation in Hebrews 2.17 used about the, the death of Jesus. He's asking for the atonement sacrifice to be made by God for him. And in fact the noun uh, that, that he's using there only really occurs to describe that sacrifice. If you want to scribble them down, Romans 3.25, Hebrews 9.5, 1 John 2 verse 2, 1 John 4 verse 10. So then he's asking for God to make a propitiation for him. He is in fact really begging consciously or unconsciously for the cross, for the death of Christ. And yet he goes down, even at that time, justified. So then he beats upon his breast and interestingly the same phrase occurs also in Luke, in Luke 23:48, where we read that those who came and actually saw the, the real, actual sacrifice of Christ beat upon their breasts. That's the only time that that phrase is, uh, is used here in, in Luke, uh, in these two places. So I think we're meant to draw a connection. How do you come to that real conviction of, of personal sin? And it's by looking at the cross beholding him there elicits self-examination and this is why when 1 Corinthians 11 talks about self-examination and that we should condemn ourselves so that we don't get condemned in the last day this is all sort of logical and natural that by beholding the cross we naturally find ourselves convicted of our sin. And so the old question, well, what should I be thinking about at the breaking of bread? Should I be making a list of my sins or should I just be focus focusing upon Jesus there on the cross? 
Well, it's sort of academic. You should, of course, be focusing upon Jesus on the cross, but insofar as you do that, quite naturally, you will be convicted of your own sin, because a person can't really reconstruct in their own mind what happened there and be passive to it. And so the real conviction of sin is through breaking bread with a mind focused upon the cross, and not only, of course, breaking bread, I mean, that's just an aid to memory, Um, but in reflection upon him there, we cry out, really, we beg for mercy, we beg for propitiation that this should be for me, and we confess that we are the sinner, as Paul could say that he was chief of sinners. And so, you know, he, he humbled himself. He would not lift up his eyes even to heaven. And so, this is the whole purpose, I think, of the, the connection between the cross, self-examination, and the breaking of bread. And Jesus comments in verse 14, that whoever exalts himself, that's the, the Pharisee, shall be abased, and he that humbles himself, that's the publican, shall be exalted. And Paul uses the very same words and terms in Philippians 2, where he talks about how Jesus humbled himself to the death of the cross in his identification with us as sinners, so that he was to be exalted higher than anybody else. And so, in that self-humbling, in that humbling of yourself, convicted by the cross, you become identified with the Jesus there who was the servant of all, the supreme servant. And we are justified, Romans 5 verse 9, by the shedding of the blood of Christ. This man goes down to his house justified. So can, so can we, right now, because we are justified by him. So then, we go on uh, further on in, um, in Luke 18. And the question that arises after all that Jesus has said in verse 18, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Well, as he says in John 6, the work of God is to believe on him who, Jesus, who God has sent, that is on Jesus. And the answer ultimately was in verse 22, come and follow me. That is really what we are to do, to have him and you know, what would Jesus do as continually in front of our eyes, continually. And so, Jesus was uh, expecting them to understand that what is to be done is to follow him. And in the, uh, in the other record it says that it was a young man in verse 18 it says it was here a certain ruler who asked him what should I do to inherit eternal life in the other record it says it was a young man and this man answers when Jesus says well yeah, you know the commandments don't steal, don't commit adultery etc he says in verse 21 all these have I kept from my youth up the other records say he was a young man now I mean the obvious arrogancy was not commented upon by Jesus he's so gentle in fact one of the other records says that Jesus, when he heard that, loved him. We would have got irritated that this this guy was so up himself. He's a young man, and and Jesus says, well, keep the commandments. He said, oh yeah, from my youth I've done that. But he is only a youth. But Jesus 
set us a great example there, I think, of not pointing out the obvious, but we know that he didn't sort of uh, smother a smoking flax. He tried to fan it into life, and so he always is trying to run with what a person has got. But he does warn that, in verse 24, how hardly shall they that have riches enter into the kingdom of God. In the parallel record, it says, how hardly shall those that trust in riches enter into the kingdom. Here Jesus says those who have riches. So, you know, to have riches is to trust in them. And this is the problem. And we all, if we're honest, in some way or another, want to be rich, or we want to have quite a lot for ourselves. And yet, and we wonder sometimes why Jesus doesn't give it to us. You know, Mark 10:24, the man who trusts in riches will have a hard time entering the kingdom. And here, in verse 24 of our chapter, he who has riches. If you have them, you're almost sure to trust in them. And yet, yeah, verse 25, he says that it's easier for a camel to go through the needle's eye than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. And I know it's been criticised, but I, I do think that the old explanation of that verse is, is actually right, that there was this needle gate in the, in the city walls, it was the big gate where the camel could go through with all its goods on it, and there was the needle's eye, the small gate, where a camel could only just about squeeze through if it first of all got onto its knees and got rid of all its wealth or all the goods that were on it and it could just about, on its knees, just about squeeze through, bruising its humps as it went through. And why I think that that, that is correct, uh, not only a uh, point of view of reading what people say uh, about needles eye being a, a term for the small gate in the city wall, but it, it fits in with what we've, said, what we've seen so far in the chapter. But if the camel had to get on its knees, if the camel had to kneel right down and humble itself in front of everyone to just squeeze through, well this is exactly what we have been reading. That Jesus has said in uh, verse 14, that he who humbles himself will be exalted, and then they bring the child to him, um, and he says, verse 17, unless you're going to become as a little child, you won't enter into the kingdom. And now he gives this other story, a parable, about the, the camel, who is like the rich man, having to humble itself, having to get down on its knees, uh, and just about squeeze through. So it sort of all hangs together. And so there we are, focusing again upon the, the death of Jesus and his resurrection, and what it means for us, and that he died for me. And we should be convicted, as the people were who first saw the actual death of Jesus, with the death of our own sinfulness. And there's nothing that I can say to, to magically do that to you. We have to, in the, in the deep privacy of our own hearts, reconstruct the scene there. It doesn't maybe matter if we get some of the details wrong, but we need to do that because that's the way that we will be convicted. And that is the way, that is the, what will lead us to beating upon our breasts like he did, um, like a, a, a woman as it were, uh, as we said earlier, in a way most unusual that would have stuck out to the people who first heard the parable of something most unusual. 
and then we will go down to our house justified, just like that insistent widow also did. 